Welcome to the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 90. I'm your host, Brian. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to gun owners and we tackle them from the perspective of concealed carriers and cops. Today, I'm joined or co-hosted by uh, Mr. Haney McMood. We're going to talk 1911 platforms and 2011 platforms and uh, pros and cons for the armed citizen and the cop. But first, today's sponsors are KSG Armory, newest sponsor to the podcast, KSG Armory Holsters. Check them out at ksgarmory.com. As always, Eastridge Hall EDC Belt Company, longtime sponsor of the podcast, the most uh, comfortable, functional concealed carry belt on the market. And we have some limited runs going on right now. Won't spoil that one. Uh, also, I just launched a Patreon page. Check it out if you feel compelled. It's at Eastridge Training, Training and Consulting at Patreon. And I'll put all the links in the show notes for you. And that concludes our intro. It's been a minute. So let's bring in... Our guest Haney is with us again, sir. Oh, too long, too long. It's been too long. Oh, our schedules and timelines and such have uh, not permitted us to have a meeting of the minds in quite some time. But uh, you are here and uh, doing backflips on Zoom. I see so. So we're going to talk uh, a platform that you and I have an affinity for and uh, the 1911 and it, and we'll just throw 2011s under there, under the blanket of uh, the 1911 platform. You've been a long time carrier. I, I mainly centered around competition with uh, the 1911s. So, and then building them just because I didn't want to, you know, spend a lot of money with a, a gunsmith. So. So how long to go with the spending a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> to keep them maintained, right? Yeah, indeed. So you said you even had notes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kick it off and each one of us are going to pick a pro under okay. the, let's say under, we'll start off with the banner of under, under the cop banner, right? Okay. So the pros of a 1911 platform for average cop. You go with number one. Go ahead. Well, for 1911s, um, if you look at it in its use in law enforcement, uh, the first pro that I can think of is that um, it's really the most uh, shootable platform, at least in wide use, that I'm aware of. As, uh, as far and, as and that's a combination when. of several things. Are, are you talking about in a particular era? It was or no even today uh, if I, I would i think that if i were me you or any of the people i know if we were to give them a certain target at a certain distance said okay hey look no time limit um i want you to do uh five rounds as good as you can do i don't know how many people w- wouldn't choose a 1911 uh, uh that is you know correctly set up etc just for the pure shootability of it. Now, obviously, sh- just pure shootability is not 
even ha- is not the whole equation. It's not even half the equation in terms of uh, handguns that are in wide usage. Uh, I, I don't know of a better one. Yeah. So you would go with shootability for number one. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a, it's for a couple different reasons that they're shootable. They're not magic. What they are are uh, they they really set the standard for ergonomics. Um, and that was going to yeah, that was going to be my pro is the ergonomics of that gun. Yeah. Um, you know, what I, I coined this phrase on social media that are or actually on my Patreon page. I said, you know, when the Brady bill was signed in 94, mm-hmm. it drove 1911 <laughs> technology to a new place. Um, and then when it sunset in 2004, the, uh, polymer framed guns, the polymer standard capacity or higher capacity guns. And even some of the, uh, you know, alloy frame Beretta 92s, P226s, they started like a cold war arms race who can do it better, who can do it cheaper. And almost universally, the big advertising tag was ergonomic, similar to that of the 1911, right? It's got the same grip angle as your favorite 1911. It's got a, you know, a grip safety a la 1911. It's got a, you know, a shorter trigger, uh, trigger cycle a la 1911. Sure. So I was going to say, um, you know, ergonomics was going to be my pro. So, and I, I throw that in, uh, um, in terms of shootability, um, like, and it's multiple things, uh, uh, trigger, um, the ergonomics of the controls, um, the width of the grip in terms of, you know, being able to manage the trigger, um, you know, solidly and not feel like you're reaching and things like that. And then, you know, in the last, uh, probably, you know, 25 years, even more things, have benefited that uh, the availability of uh, 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 really slim grips. Um, uh, short triggers have been available for a long time. That's one of the original reasons for the A1. But short trigger, thin grips, etc. Um, most people can get their hands around it. Yeah. So shootability, ergonomics, and would you call that now? Granted. Uh, I don't think they're all created equal in the ergonomics department because of, uh, you know, change, subtle changes that have been made over the years that lend them towards the ergonomics with different shooting styles. Uh, for instance, a Weaver shooter, give me a, give me a 1911 a one. I'll make it, I'll make it sing. Somebody that's shooting a more modern, hodgepodge of like a fighting st- an isosceles style fighting stance or a, a boxer stance with uh more straightened arms so to speak more your enos latham era yeah. i saw i hate to say the word isosceles stance because everybody immediately thinks flat foot gunfighter right but uh but when you add that in and you put high you know a high thumb grip on the gun if if you shoot a thumbs high or you know mcp cmc married joints of the hand on the gun with a traditional setup, you can really have some ergonomic issues with the grip safety, et cetera. So I kind of 
put 1911, 2011s in two categories. You're talking the Colt style, unfettered, off the rack, narrow beaver tail, all that stuff versus the more modern platforms. The more modern platforms, shootability, ergonomics, uh, all of that stuff is, is golden. And I really attribute a lot of that to the Brady Bill. If one good thing came out of it, it was that we started innovating with 1911s again on a much broader scale. Wouldn't disagree with that. I would add that a lot of those ergonomic um, tweaks, adjustments, uh, gains, etc., occurred mostly from the competition world. Right. And that's, you know, that's true for several of our shooting disciplines, you know, just like uh, the performance of cars, the competition world, which has somewhat to do with realism, maybe nothing to do with realism or anywhere in between. But in terms of performance, that that, you know, bleeds down to making a better product. Just right. like, you know, the old car manufacturers used to say, you know, win on Sunday, sell on Monday with cars. And with firearms, uh, the world's best shooters in terms of competition, which, again, is competition, but that has a lot to do with shootability. Um, they, they, for the most part, kind of steered towards 1911s because of its um, built-in advantages. And then its advantages that, as you said, we continued to develop where we were like, well, if I'm stuck, let me have the best thing that I shoot, so to speak. For for cops, I would say, you know, shootability, ergonomics. Um, and then finally, I know this is going to sound bizarre, but the safety features of it, you have to be pretty deliberate in defeating them. So, you know, people see a cocked and locked gun in a in a holster and it looks intimidating because the hammer's back and the reality of it is, you know, you have to defeat two safety mechanisms before you can make the gun go bang, provided you put it in the holster in that condition, right? Yeah. Um, which is going to bring me to con number one on the police side is okay. con number one being the safety mechanisms in that. And what I mean by that is grip safety, thumb safety, and we have to ingrain that the Sights off target, finger off trigger, safety engaged. Sights on target, finger on trigger, safety disengaged, right? Like there has to be a process. And those of us that have shot competition or lived with them for any amount of time understand that that is very similar to like an AR-15 type uh, mentality where if the gun's in action, it's off safe. As soon as it comes out of action, it goes back on safe. And that is something that you have a generation now of 30 plus years of cops carrying striker fired on off guns. And what I mean by on off guns is they're either you're on the trigger or you're off the trigger, right? There's, there is passive safeties there, but so on top of, yeah, it's a pro that we have these additional safety features. It also could be a con provided you don't have should we say sufficient level of training around that platform? What's your thoughts? What's your next con? Uh, I agree with you. Oh, okay. Uh, well, we can discuss that. Well, later. well, before we move on to a next con, in my opinion, that's both a pro and a con. So from the pro side is if that you've put in the time and um, just like with running an AR, if your sights are up, 
the safety is off and you are on the trigger. Uh, you are off the trigger. Forgive me. You are off the trigger, but your sights are off until you intend to shoot. If you're not on sights and you have a depressed muzzle or in a different position, your safety is on, which is the way we run our ARs. Right. Um, th- with 1911s, it's the same deal. And, you know, there have been numerous um, documented instances of people who have um, lost control of their handgun. A person was able to get away from them, and what they do is they just hit trigger repeatedly, and they don't understand why it's not going off. And, and for us, if you are working in a law enforcement realm, that, that, that is not a negative. That's a, that's a plus. Mm-hmm. It does come with a con in terms of that requires more training, more time, putting in the hours until, you know, if the pistol comes up and you're starting, you're starting to find your front sight and your rear sight and the firing solution in general, the safety is going off. And if you're not, then it's on. That takes training and time and so on. But if you do do that, I, I, I think it's a plus in the law enforcement world. Right. In the, so it's, there's a difference to me whether you are in the um, catching bad guys business or if you're not. And, and this is not a um, in any way uh, um, sliding either field. It's just each field has different or each realm has different priorities. Yeah. And to me, if you can run a manual safety instinctively on autopilot, um, I think it's a plus. There are people that we know that have been in uh, tussles with people over over their duty gun. And, um, yeah, the thumb safety turned out to be a, a really big plus. So it, it's, it's a feature. And depending on what your responsibility is, um, it, it's just a feature. It can be a pro. It can be a con. To me, in law enforcement, it's a pro. In non-law enforcement, to you know, people who carry a handgun for defense and so on, I'm not sure it's a pro. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. the The, the next one is one that's very dear, near and dear to my heart. I'm going to jump ahead of you on the cons here, and that is very simply that with the hammer back and the firing pin exposed in an open top or even with a, a duty rig that has a whole, I'm, I'm talking open carry cop, right? Uh, right. In a duty style holster, you essentially have a funnel into the firing components of the gun. So it rains outside mud, dust, water, whatever it is, deodorant. I've seen deodorant hang guns up before, or get them so nasty. They wouldn't fire uh, where it falls out of your shirt. I've seen uh, French fry salt, uh, all manner of of uh, impingements to the firing system of that gun simply by the way that it is exposed when the hammer's back and it's in the holster. If you notice the old military holsters from uh, turn of the century, 1911 through all the way in through the uh, 80s, 90s, early 2000s with the Beretta 92, they all had a flap that went over the top of the gun. And that wasn't yeah. by accident, right? Um, right. 
a lot of people think, oh, well, it's because your your sidearm is like the weapon of last resort, so this, that, and the other. And it had more to do with keeping debris out of the gun. So now you put that in the law enforcement realm, that's something that, you know, guys like yourself that have carried them for years know, hey, if it rains outside, I'm probably going to have to do some maintenance to my gun. Uh, maybe more a little more thorough maintenance than somebody carrying a uh, Tupperware striker fired gun, right? Uh, I, I don't disagree with you at all. It's it's like with um, lots of, with, you know, with, with lots of um, variables in any arena, be it driving, running, walking, eating, shooting, whatever, different variables are of more import to some people than to others. And, and uh, you know, a trainer that you and I both, both you and I respect, Paul Howe, that's one of his main issues um, and I've been lucky enough to train with him a couple of times. One of his main issues is like, yeah, all that stuff is exposed. And when you're, you know, working in, a, a, you know, an environment where just nature, dust, swirling wind, um, you know, um, very fine debris and so on, that 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 can turn into be a problem uh, to other people, uh, perhaps. You are carrying that pistol concealed. The issue of stuff, you know, working its way into the lockwork action, hammer, uh, firing pin, etc., is almost a non-issue. So it, it all depends on uh, your realm, uh, where you operate, and I hate to use that term, you know me, um, where you run around, and what what stuff what stuff you do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh- so I, I kind of look at it as um, it, it's the master's degree program of firearms in the gun world uh, for a, a cop. And let's say yeah. a, a, a G, an off-the-rack G17 with a set of sights is like, okay, you graduated high school. You know how to run the gun. Um, you know, you can, you can take the slide off safely, load it, unload it, and do very rudimentary maintenance, as in wipe it down and lube it clean it out and lube it maybe a little bit of barrel maintenance and nothing in there is so critical that by the way you take it if you take it apart according to the manufacturer's manual and put it back together with minor maintenance really good high probability it's going to work that's going to be my 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 final con for the le world if you disassemble a 1911 improperly in the wrong order if you dry press the gun while the slide is off. If you drop the slide on an empty chamber, you are doing cumulative damage to the gun. So I agree to me. That's where I say it's a master's degree gun. And what I mean by that is there are very, very inflexible TTPs that you have to employ to keep that gun in good serviceable condition. And the, the one that bothers me the worst is people dropping the slide on an empty chamber. That is, one, it's rude. Uh, and two, uh, depending on how much overcocking is built into the, uh, the lock work of that gun, meaning how much the hammer actually passes over the sear before it drops back into place, uh, you do that repeatedly long enough and it will peen the sear nose into a position that the gun becomes dangerous. Uh, and I have seen that happen. It was really bad on six inch 1911s in nine millimeter, uh, shooting them in PPC. It didn't take very many slide drops on an empty chamber before the, 
the Cyrano's took such a beating because of all the weight that they would become soundly unsafe. On top of they would have a horrific trigger. So, but things like that that you you have to you have to devote yourself to uh, in, in a generation where you know we work in inclement can inclement weather, we work in. You're never working the shift you want to, right? It's it's always some overnight business or or something that bleeds into it, and the the degree of maintenance to properly keep that gun running is 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 not only high but it's also very specific. So that I would put as a con. I agree with you, um, but again, it's it's how big is that a factor in uh, what your what your responsibilities are and how you carry it. Now, uh, you know, uh, not to be too, um, I don't know, cavalier about it, but yeah, if you're as old as I am and you, because you're, 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 you're way more gun knowledgeable than your age to us, when we hear a slide crash with an empty chamber to us, an angel just died. Yeah. A, a Labrador puppy just took one, man. It's exactly. It, it just, it drives us crazy, but we were trained in a different way and yeah, you, that's not something you do, but, um, uh, I, I think that, that, that is, that is also, um, a negative not to play devil's advocate. Well, well, actually to play devil's advocate, I think it's my job today. The thing is, is that it is a very shootable platform. And one of the reasons is because it has such a shootable trigger mm-hmm. and the downsides of it are the maintenance the fouling that can uh, uh, tie up your lock work, uh, mismanaging it in terms of slamming the slide shut repeatedly, all of those things. But the upside is, what, you know, if everything's running right, it has such a shootable trigger. And um, and and the, the to me, it's two. There's two parts to it. One is it's such a shootable trigger. Uh, The other side of it is, which is kind of, to me, um, something that I've learned over the years. It's not, this is not rocket surgery. It's what it is, is what is the weight of the weapon versus the weight of the trigger? You know, when you meet people and they go, oh, I shoot rifles a lot better. I believe you because the rifle weighs eight pounds and the trigger weighs four. So when you slap the trigger hard, you know, if you hit it with six pounds of pressure, inertia of eight pounds ain't going to happen. It's not going to leave before the slapping of the trigger has affected the sight picture. And with 1911s, you know, they're not light, which is possibly a downside. But, you know, an average 1911 with a full magazine of ammo, it weighs somewhere in the vicinity of... I don't know, 42, 43 ounces. About two pounds, a little under two pounds. When you're running a trigger, that's only about 40. Yeah, you know, uh, now if you're running a trigger that is only about four and a half pounds, if if you don't manage the trigger well and perhaps put too much pressure, slap it, whatever that we call it, um, the, the, the pistol doesn't move that far off target. And this is something I've noticed over the years where in training people, they go, oh, no, 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 the 1911 is magic. It's not magic. It's got a good manageable trigger, and it's a heavy pistol with a, with a fairly light trigger in relation to it, the weight of the weapon. In a Glock, 
um, even though nominally they are five and a half pound trigger. In reality, most of them are six, six and a half pounds. And the gun weighs loaded uh, two, three, four ounces over two pounds. So yep. you have to manage the trigger better. You look at a SIG 226, the first shot is must be generous 12. and say it's 10 pounds. Oh, you're more generous than more. me. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm going to be nice. And this. Just call it 10 pounds. Well, you know, when, when you go to press a 10-pound trigger on a two-and-a-half-pound gun, wow, then all of a sudden you get the magic low lefts. And that's something I've had to explain. I don't, I don't really explain it to um, people that I'm training other than to teach them to shoot well. But I do explain it when I'm training instructors to tell them that, look, that this isn't magic. This is this is an issue of how do you get them to keep, as you always say, keep sights on target, press trigger to the rear, right? With yeah. a firm, firm grip. Press Don't trigger, move sights, no press move trigger. gun. And, that, and that's it. <laughs> press trigger, uh, no move gun. I, I stress yeah. that more with instructors. I don't tend to do it with students because they generally have the gun that they have. Uh, along the, well, I hope that all made sense. Yeah, along the trigger thing, uh, Something a lot of people discount on the 1911 trigger is it is essentially a button. It is no different than playing Space Invaders in the arcade, right? It has uh, maybe on the outside a quarter inch of travel before we're against the sear. And then a a four and a half pound trigger. So it's really similar to a two-stage rifle trigger. Um, As a matter of fact, if you look at the way a lot of two-stage rifle triggers are designed... Um, they feel very, very similar to, it's like a pivoting 1911 trigger, right? Uh, they're slack and then the wall and then break through it. Um, but, and, and the, the, the more tuned the gun is, and I'm not saying tuned is, um, necessarily a positive, although tuned is generally good. It can be too light, but with most 1911s, it's not even a two-stage trigger. It's it's you know a tenth of an inch of movement of slack as opposed to a Glock, which is almost half as trigger uh, travel is take up. Yeah, on a Sig, it's probably eighty percent. Right, um, and so on. And so people will will shoot nineteen elevens, and it's almost like uh, without getting too literary. It, you know, it's almost like Ulysses, you know, in, in the Iliad. It's like a siren song. You know, they, they shoot a 1911 and go, wow, I just shot that better than anything. Yeah. Well, I understand why you shot it better than anything, because you have poor trigger management. And this one is more forgiving. Yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. Um, and the straight back trigger. That is something that uh, a lot of people discount. I will call yeah. it a pro on both sides. Um, a, a trigger that moves uh, horizontally la- in in one plane of motion, it moves straight back and straight forward, uh, will always be superior to a pivoting trigger, period, because the geometry of that does not change as you move it. Uh, something that I was very big on back in the day was uh, flat triggers. I'm not so much anymore. Uh, but I was very regimented about 
my competition guns all had flat triggers in them because it was very forgiving on trigger finger placement. If you got in a hurry and you got way too much, way too little, a little low on the frame, you bodged a grip, you bodged a draw. It was extremely forgiving to have a flat trigger there because like I said, it turns into space invaders at the mall. You're just pressing a button. Uh, and with a pivoting trigger, you have to, your finger has to travel on various spots of that trigger through its cycle. Now I love Beretta 92s because Mr. Beretta, his hands were shaped really similar to mine apparently. And, uh, and the way that their triggers work, uh, I manage them really well in the double action format. Moving back to 1911s, let's talk on the civilian side for a minute, or on the armed citizen side. And like I said in other podcasts, I don't, I don't say the word civilian as a derogatory term. It just somebody who is not carrying a badge, right? Uh, not empowered to uh, make arrests. Uh, I have a couple of pros for 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 that with uh, with the resurgence, I won't call it the rise of this new thing called appendix carry with the resurgence of appendix carry and the equipment associated with it. I think it's an, an, an inherently safe platform to holster reholster, etc. cetera. Uh, provided you have the sequence, correct guns off the target safety's engaged and then lighten my grip up and let the grip safety engage. So I think that's a pro. Uh, uh, I agree with you. Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm going to kind of be uh, uh, not contrarian, but I'm going to agree with you in the, in the sense that the, the first pro in my opinion is that it is such an inherently shootable platform. That's the same pro for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I agree and with that. People is is what's the pro? Oh, it it's inherently uh, ergonomic and and shootable. If you want to, we can talk about the immediate comp. But that's right. and um, in my experience, um, l- I've been lucky uh, in my career that I I worked in a place where I trained a whole bunch of agencies, and furthermore, I was lucky that the different agencies that. Uh, you know, sent us in-service officers and cadets, we had all kinds of triggers. We had striker triggers. We had double-action, single-action triggers, like uh, the biggest two are, you know, uh, Berettas and SIGs. And then we had single-action triggers. And we had officers from agencies with all three. And so, you know, I, I, I luckily got to see that. And in terms of uh, the pro, uh, shootable is shootable. Um, a smooth trigger, a smooth trigger that moves straight back, a smooth trigger that moves straight back and has a short re- reset in terms of shootability works well for everybody. And if you want to go to the con, I'm ready. Now let's hold it off. Uh, okay. for just a minute. So another pro that I will go to on the civilian or armed citizen side that I should have called uh-huh. a con on the, uh, police side is the tailor ability, the ability to send that gun to a gunsmith and have everything that I want done be perfectly done, uh, where that gun is mold essentially molded to me. Now we do this on the polymer side a lot. 
Uh, but when you go into the LE agency world, uh, there's this big L word called liability and Oh, they, that L word. Yeah, that L word. And they typically want you to keep your gun as close to a stock format as possible. And the 1911 platform is very easily tailored with the proper gunsmith application, right? Uh, we can we can do amazing things to Absolutely. those guns to make them fit a shooter. Um, you know, I spent a long time. I spent eight, nine years building them in my spare time and, and tinkering with them and making parts fit together. It is old school craftsmanship. It's very difficult. But if you are someone of means and someone on the armed citizen community, you can tailor a gun to you and have your dream gun in a 1911. Uh, I, I agree. And, and to me, that is, that's one of those weird, um, not weird, but um, just different traits that from a law enforcement perspective, that's not really an upside because for the most part, they're approved a certain way and they don't want them to change from a um, um, civilian you know, non-sworn carrier. And again, uh, forgive me, everybody. I, I know that both law enforcement and non-law enforcement are technically both civilian. I understand this. It's just used in terms of sworn or non-sworn. Like, are you sworn to go out and fix problems or do you just protect yourself? But moving on, um, that is a plus in the civilian world, because I can uh, change it, tune it, uh, make it better for me. In the law enforcement world, uh, that that is um, a little bit of a hindrance, because normally it's like, this is it. We give it to you a box, use it like this. Yep. And any variation from that, the L word does come up now i've been lucky uh not in terms of uh, having to um um fix or uh negotiate or whatever but at least just to witness which is i've witnessed an agency that issued the 1911 platform and we had a you know a certain cadet and we explained that this cadet has really small hands is it what would it be possible that you guys change your long trigger to a short trigger and change the um, the grip screws, etc., and grips to thin? And that one agency said, let me look into it. And within six hours, we had an answer. They said, yeah, you know what? Within two days, uh, we'll have the parts in. We have no problem with changing to thin grip grips and a short trigger and that cadet went on and excelled and you know was able to shoot well and graduate but that's a rarity i'm just glad i got to see it but in reality that's a con in the law enforcement world but to the non-law enforcement world it's a pro you can do that there's no hindrance to that for you to make it fit you yeah and to me, the liability side on that, on the, the law enforcement realm comes from manufacturer's warranty a lot. And it comes from yeah. inadvertently 
deactivating safeties, right? Like we don't want to do that. We want to keep that gun with all the safeties working. Um, you know, I, I met a detective once that carried an officer's model. And the first thing his gunsmith did was just scrap the series 80 parts in this officer's model. And I went, uh, that's a drop safety. There's a reason that exists. Um, and, and he was toting this around completely unaware that that had happened. Yeah. Uh, if that gun had went back to Colt, the uh, original manufacturer, every warranty on that gun would have been voided. So on the law enforcement side, you kind of have to play with that, especially in agency issue. If the agency issues you a gun and it requires some degree of gunsmithing, it better come from the factory to keep it all under warranty. So if that gun catastrophically fails, um, it can be replaced under warranty, right? Uh, and the safety issue, but, but moving on from that, um, I think we've, we've had some pretty good pros there. Uh, I will say, uh, con, you can get it in too many calibers now. That's con number (laughs) one. And and I'll, I'll, I'll defend my position. Uh, that gun was never intended to run anything shorter than or smaller diameter than, the 45 ACP. So anytime you deviate from that, and that includes 38 super nine by 23, uh, 40 Smith and Wesson, 10 millimeter, uh, and especially nine millimeter. Anytime you deviate from the original formula, you are handicapping something with that gun. And I don't mean handicapping it like, but you're basically crutching that gun to make it, uh, function. Uh, and, in all honesty, I don't think anybody has crutched those gun the nine millimeter nineteen eleven as well as Wilson Combat. I haven't found I haven't found a single one in nine millimeter that I thought was um, finicky because Bill put the work in to really make those guns sing. Uh, we can have guns in nine and forty and 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 uh, thirty eight super that run reliably but it's always a compromise on that platform. The cycle of the sl- I mean, everything about that gun was designed around that cartridge, right? So to me, that's kind of a con. Um, okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, that, you know, as, as John Moses Browning in, uh, intended, uh, it was meant for a cartridge between 1.240 and 1.270, which is essentially a 45. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, there are other calibers can be made to run, but it was originally designed both in terms of slide travel and slide weight to be a 45. That's not to say that there are not perfectly uh, reliable 38 supers. Uh, Colt has been selling them, I think, since 1929. And to me, the bigger issue than diameter is length. Mm-hmm. So after 45, I, I 38 super. Yeah, you have to do certain things. You have to worry about uh, recoil spring weight and so on, and obviously magazines, but uh, they can run well. Once you get to cartridges that are shorter than the slide travel was intended for, like 40 and 9, you do have to do things. Can right. it be re- super reliable? It can be. 
but it did take a while. And the question is, okay, uh, to me, there are three levels. One level is, are you having it built from the ground up from somebody who knows what they're doing? In which case, there's really no issues. It'll run if the guy knows what he's doing. The second level is, are you willing to buy uh, you know, a finished gun, but does this purveyor of these products know what they're doing? And Wilson Combat's a good example. There are others. I think Nighthawk does a great job. Uh, I think Dan Wesson probably does a great job. Yeah. And so on. And then the third level is you just go to the gun store and you go, oh, I love 1911s. Oh, wait, I have a lot of 40 ammo. They offer a 40. I'll buy that. The third level is the one I have the most problem with. The problem with option one and not option two is cost. Mm-hmm. So when I when I purchase, uh, you know, uh, a Wilson Combat, a Nighthawk, you know, we're not we're not shilling for any, any product, you know, any company, but companies that know what they're doing with the platform. And I've only had experience with Nighthawk, Wilson, uh, some STIs and Dan Wesson where to, you know, they worked well with nine millimeter. They knew what they were doing, but you know, those aren't cheap guns. Mm -hmm. But when you're looking at something like a Kimber or a Colt and it's like, it's the same price, it's nine, it's 40, it's 45, it's any caliber you want. Uh, yeah, I have a problem with that because they generally don't run really well. No. And, uh, you know, having built guns, I can tell you, uh, I used to have a real affinity for nine millimeter uh, or 0.355 bullet launchers, right? Because uh, because of the flexibility with that platform, uh, the ability to shoot a 90 grain 380 bullet at some hypersonic speed uh, and then loaded all the, all the way to a heavier bullet that, that mimics 357 Magnum and all points in between there. If you're a hand loader, uh, whereas 45, you kind of get, you get two thirties, two hundreds and one eighty fives. And it's, you know, 1100, a thousand and eight fifty. That's what you get. You, you know, there's only yeah. so much there. Uh, the other thing is that, that used to be an issue that I think has not become an issue lately. This is a pro is with a 45. I think you can pretty reliably run hollow point ammunition these days with a standard throated barrel. Uh, that maybe was not the case up until, I don't know, probably the mid eighties, early nineties, where you had to find somebody to make it do that. Now you can pretty much buy an off the shelf 45, um, of reputable manufacturer, and it will feed the bulk of the hollow point ammunition out there, defensive ammunition out there. So that's a pro. If you're sticking on the 45 side, uh, nine millimeter wise, uh, STI staccato has risen to prominence as of late. Um, and everything I've seen with those guns thus far is pretty good. One of the cons that I will say for the, uh, armed populace, and this is also a con for law enforcement is when something is not right with one of those guns, it requires someone with almost an engineering level of experience to get that gun running again. Um, you know, I've, I've talked to some people from other manufacturers that are like, 
you know, when we get a warranty in, there are two guys in this entire factory that deal with warranties. And I go, why is that? Well, they're the only ones that know how to troubleshoot these that far in detail. Uh, if there is some type of part that's out of spec or some type of uh, compounding error that happened in the assembly, they're the guys that know how to uh, correct that. Um, they call them master gunsmiths and it's, so that's kind of a con, uh, you know, there are a lot of gunsmiths out there that are, and they, they vary in, in skill levels, uh, for building guns, troubleshooting guns, maintaining guns, etc. Um, you want to have a gun done by a reputable gunsmith. I'm let's just say top of the heap right now is Ted Yost, Jason Burton the two artists of, of the 1911, how long before you're going to see your gun again, just ballpark it. And let's say the top of the heap is Jason Burton and, and Ted Yost. Maybe those two guys, uh, they build things that should be in art museums that are, that are fighting firearms ballpark for how long it's going to take a gun to get done from one of them. Between uh, two and four years. Right. Um, is my guess. Let's say um, maybe somebody that's not as prominent in that world, but had, that possesses all those talents, like a, gar- a guy like uh, Carl, uh, ba- Carl Banning. How long, if, man, I really want to get this gun personalized by that guy. Ballpark. For average hey, Joe what? off the street, a year? Two years? I, I don't I don't have to guess because I have one Carl Baining gun and I have another one coming. Okay. And Carl Baining at KGB Custom, shout out to him. Awesome guy, very talented. Um my guess is probably about eighteen months. And that is to personalize a gun, customize a gun, but more importantly, make it look like it's supposed to look. Not just some, you know punch peened beat the sights in it functional but not fashionable gun uh and there's a lot more of those gunsmiths out there than there are guys that that have the creative arts to make things look like they belong together so to me that's kind of a con and that's one of those things that it it, you know it eric gellhouse said it best if you're going to carry a 1911 buy three one to carry one to shoot and one one as a spare right like and have them all set up identical because you never know when one of them's going to have to go to that 18 month waiting list to get i don't know rebarreled new sites uh because right now because of the tupperware era and i don't say that against the manufacturer i say that against you know the just the polymer gun craze uh a lot of the gunsmiths the that you know worked in the small gunship shop down the street that could drop a brand new barrel in when yours had a, you know, split a barrel foot or a barrel link. A lot of those guys are gone. Um, there are few and far between guys that you can take a 1911 to a shop and they go, Oh, it just needs a barrel. Give me two and a half hour. Give me a day and I'll, I'll get it back to you. Oh man, your, your front sight fell out or cracked. Okay, well, let me get a three thirty by sixty five site in here, and I'll I'll set it set it up, site it in, and I'll get it back to you in a week. Those guys are not as 
There are not as many of them as there used to be, and they're getting fewer and fewer by the day. Um, I say that knowing, you know, several gunsmiths that have passed away. So, um, and, you know, Eric told me, you know, when he was carrying a 1911, he had an American Pistol Smith Guild member, 1911 gunsmith, that was 10 minutes from uh, his agency. To where if he had a problem in the middle of the night, he put it in a brown paper sack, stuck it in the guy's locked mailbox or whatever, put it in the guy's drop box in his shop with a, you know, and, and the agreement that guy had was, hey, I'll get your gun back up and running in at least a day if it doesn't require a major overhaul. So, you know, he had that access and he said, as soon as that went away, I started carrying an M&P, you know, so yeah, that's to me is kind of a con is, um, but the pro side of it for the armed citizen and even the cop is we're now exposing a generation of shooters to a platform that was kind of waning except in certain circles. And it's now really coming back to prominence. So hopefully that will inspire more people to, I don't know, go to cylinder and slide or go to, you know, Hilton yams build course or Larry Vickers build course and invest the time, resources, and uh, energy into learning how to make those platforms run and keep them running, right? So you got any uh, okay. you got anything else to add? I mean, final thoughts, pros, cons. Well, when it comes to what uh, when it comes to the idea of maintenance, um, here's the thing: is that um, to me, uh, those of us, and, and I, I'm in, I'm in. Look, I'm not. Just just, you know, in both camps, I'm in like four camps, mainly just because I like all firearms and I've got some of every type and I'm an instructor of every type. But uh, your point is valid in that. Do you have a guy that you can go to and say, hey, uh, yeah, my, my extractor either broke or it's no longer working and in three or four days he's got your pistol back to you and some of us are that lucky and some of us aren't and i've found that it's kind of a regional thing because you know obviously texas is the greatest state in the union but you know to other people um you know 1911s here are so prevalent that a lot of us have a guy that is nearby in other places, not not so much. And those of us that shoot them, um, we tend to have more than one. And so if there's an issue, we get that seen to and we carry something else. Um, now, now, I'll say that, but, you know, the fact is I carry Glocks more often than I carry 1911s. But my reason for that is is not because I don't have uh, very nice guns built by very talented people and not because I don't have um, local people that can quickly do a turnaround for me. It's because primarily I'm an instructor. Right. So what do I primarily shoot? I shoot what everybody else shoots. Right. And yeah. I, you know, I've got a lot of cool stuff, but what do I mostly shoot uh, for – Two decades, it was a Glock 17. The last 18 months, it's been a G45. Mm-hmm. Because that, that's who I'm instructing. So you don't show up with something that, you know, they, they don't have a um, kind of a, a touchstone to, you know. 
know, like, oh, yeah, that's a Glock. Yeah, I got it. That's what I've got. Or uh, an M&P, not so much. These days, more so the SIG 320. And whether we like it or not, there it is. And there's a lot of them, and that's who we have to instruct. And so is it a question of um, is it serviceable, easily serviceable, and so on for you as an individual? Or is it serviceable, easily serviceable for an agency? Right. And for an agency, (laughs) yeah, uh, the answer is pretty much no. Um, You and I both have trained with people at the very tippy tip of the pinnacle of the best well-trained people on the planet. And those units who have almost an unlimited budget, at least when it comes to, you know, guns and ammo, um, have both decided, yeah, it's um, not not really worth the trouble. It's good. It's great. We have a history with it. We have a lineage with it. All that thing. But when it comes to the actual use, training, uh, manipulation, and fixing, look, we're going to a polymer-framed, striker-fired, nine millimeter like the rest uh of the planet really yeah and you and i have a mutual acquaintance friend that uh worked in one of those units and i'll was having dinner with him one night and uh we were talking about the resurgence of of 1911 specifically because there's a lot of good, reliable nine millimeter 1911s out there right now that 15 years ago weren't. They didn't exist, uh, and if they did, they were a complete custom project that somebody commissioned. And uh, he talked about, you know, their the service life on their 1911s had kind of run its course, and they were having to issue everyone two, which that was a longstanding tradition. You got, you know, you got two because one of them inevitably mm-hmm. was in the shop, uh, so. With an unlimited budget and a small number of people comparative to big military, uh, they're they're like, we've got to solicit bids for a new sidearm because this just, it's become so maintenance intensive that, uh, you know, we, we need to look at other things. And he initially took the position of no, hell no, there's no way, uh, and when they evaluated what they were actually doing with the pistols, it was like, anybody got a problem with a Glock 19? No. Okay. Well, let's buy like a ton of them, uh, because right. purchasing new Glocks, just the, the, just the purchase of the guns, uh, within one year, like were paid for because there was no parts replacement, very little parts replacement. It didn't require a specialized person uh, to maintain and service those guns or multiple gunsmiths to keep those guns running. Uh, and they really weren't seeing the the, the need to have a, a, a single stack 45. One of the other things he mentioned that, uh, and I won't say who it, who it is, but uh, is he said, you know, our, our protocol was you had, if you were carrying a pistol, you had 50 rounds of ammunition for the pistol. He goes, that's a crap load of 1911 mags. Yep. Right. And he said, with a Glock 19, 
that's one in the gun and three mags. So just from the standpoint of, uh, of sheer logistics on the individual having to carry that gun, uh, it, it kind of ruled the day. So I, I'm pretty fascinated and excited to see that people are diving off into the 1911, 2011 again. But I'm going to make this prediction, and here it is, uh, the 11th of October, 2022, that in 36 months, 36 months, most of the people that are carrying 9mm 1911 platforms will be back on some for, form of polymer striker-fired gun. And about 10% of those people will devote to the platform. That's my prediction for 2025. prediction is accurate by the nature of the platform, which is um, law enforcement, non-law enforcement, whatever the category is. A 1911 platform is an enthusiast's gun. Be, be you a, a person who's in the living, uh, you know, has a living of working and, you know, uh, going out and, 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 and doing sworn work, be it military, law enforcement, whatever, or not, it is still an enthusiast's gun. And some people will stick to them, and the ones that stick to them, they're going to be fine because you know what? They're enthusiasts. And the ones that don't is because they're not. And that's not a um, that that's not like me talking bad about them, because everybody has, uh, in my opinion, every professional has an enthusiasm. To some, it's defensive tactics. To some, it's physical fitness. To some, it's shooting. To some, it's something else. To some, it's uh, you know working on cars, whatever it is. But if you're not a gun enthusiast, that platform is not for you, much as I like them. But I recognize that I am an enthusiast, and I, I, I like being able to tweak them, shoot them, and, and, and enjoy the advantages of them, and I'm willing to take on the downsides of them. If you're not, it's not the platform for you. Yeah, and I am an enthusiast as well on the shooting side and the mechanical side of, of all things handgun uh, in the current role that I uh, possess where I ride a bicycle, I cringe to think about a four and a quarter inch commander with a hard Chrome lower polished blue upper, maybe a set of pre band ivories, uh, you know, 25 line per inch checkering front and back flat top serrated with a set, you know, a gold bead front. Thank you. Ken Hackathorn and a U notch rear yep. uh, in God's caliber. I hate to think of what that's going to look like when it hits pavement at about 15, 18 miles an hour. <laughs> it's just not cool. Right. If that happens to my G 45, I go, eh, Oh, well, uh, I, you actually hold the distinction of the only person on earth that's gotten me to willingly throw a gun into a gravel lot. So congratulations, Annie, on that. Yeah, uh, let's just leave it like that because if people don't know the nuance of that, they'll think it's silly, but yes. But no, it was in a training course and it was to reinforce a backup gun transition. And uh, right. with the rule being, if the gun is at slide lock, you can pitch it, you can drop it, you can do whatever you want with it. 
and go for your backup gun versus go for a reload. And I chose to drop it in the gravel because you know what? There's 8,000 G45s out there. I care less about that per gun. Per square mile. Per square mile. There's parts for one in every gas station in America. I care less about that gun. As a matter of fact, uh, I still carry that same gun, and it's got the gravel gravel marks and all. Uh, I'll go buy another one. I don't care. 400 dollars. I, I'll get another yeah. one. I'll get three more for the price of the slide and frame kit that I'm looking at to build my retirement gun. Right. Buy five Glocks for what I'm going to sink into one gun. Um, so yeah, I think we covered some good ground and we're just over an hour. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to mention one last thing. Go for it. Which is ammo sensitivity. So it is a, um, a con for law enforcement because, um, a really, really good setup, 1911. Uh, the What it feeds in terms of ammo and the magazines you use is a little bit limited. And as a result, if you work for an agency and you and I have both done that for a long time, what happens with our ammo? Oh, wait, what, what's this year's lowest bid? And that's what we're carrying. And sometimes it's not lowest bid. Sometimes it's just the nature of that's available. Yeah, uh, that too. And that, that has happened the last three or four years for sure. Now, if you're not tied to uh, uh, a particular load and you, you have the forethought to go, this is what the gun feeds well, performs well with, uh, the recoil pattern agrees with this pistol, the accuracy is good. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and drop, you know, 400 bucks and buy a case of it. And I'm good for a while. Yeah. In law enforcement, you, you, you don't have that luxury. And with 1911s, it's, it's like, um, wait, we just switched from Golden Saber to Gold Dot or to Winchester Ranger. Um, 1911s, not to say that they don't necessarily will work, but they're not that tolerant. If you find a good magazine and ammo combination, they can be amazingly reliable. But you change one factor, and you can all of a sudden uh, take on a whole bunch of reliability issues. And most people don't understand that in the old, old days, and this is not law enforcement, this is in terms of military, um, you know, when the military ordered uh, 230 grain ball, it just wasn't like the 230 grain ball that you go to the gun shop for. 230 grain ball had very precise specifications in terms of length, in terms of the ogive, the angle at which it hits the feed ramp, etc. Right. They weren't just round nose ball. Even round nose ball was very specific. Nowadays, not only is if you say 230 grain round nose full metal jacket, that means nine different things now at a gun shop, let yeah. alone when you go to the hollow point part. Now, if you're not tied to any particular ammo, you go, you know what? I've got this pistol. It works great. It's amazingly reliable. It shoots 230 grain uh, Hornady XTP, 230 grain Gold Dot, you name the load, and it works perfectly on that. Well, you know what? You have the luxury of just buying that and carrying that. Right. 
and that's a pro in one direction. In a law enforcement setting, it's a matter of bids, it's a matter of cost, it's a matter of what's available, and so on. And your perfectly reliable 1911 can go to not being that anymore with that one variable yeah switch yeah i know of a uh particular agency i I won't mention it It was a very large agency that uh set up some competition guns around their agency purchase which was 124 grain hst uh actually it was actually called hydroshock back then had the little rod in the center of the hollow point right those guns would shoot an inch and a half at 50 yards all day. They're 1911s. Just, I mean, they sung like a choir. They had the guns completely dialed in around that ammo. And what happened in 2007, that ammo ceased being produced. So now you had a fleet of guns that were dialed specifically for accuracy and reliability for that one particular loading. Um, now, if that was Glock, Sig P320, meh, who cares, right? Big deal. Yeah. Get a different ammo. We'll try some other ones out. One of them will shoot good. Uh, with the 1911, that involved, we need to rebarrel, retime the ejectors, retention the extractors. Uh, we've got to look at hammer spring weight because certain ammo doesn't run with certain hammer springs. Um, we've got to look at chamber dimensions. So, a barrel on the low end is 300 bucks. I mean, we're talking rifle, almost rifle barrel. That is for the barrel and the install. Right. The barrel and the install is at least $300. Yeah. Unless you know a guy like me, then it's just buy the barrel and bring it to the shop. Right. right? But the, uh, but, but the bottom line in that was they had essentially specced a gun out for a bullet load which mm-hmm. guess what the military did back in the 1900s spec a gun out for a bullet load. Right. And look, and then I looked for it the next year and I'm, they're like, Oh God, dude, we're shooting this and that. And we're trying everything. And we're now having to try to m- get a company to mimic that load so that we can still be competitive with these guns because these guns are $3,500 a piece. And we got two seasons of shooting out of them because we set them up around that bullet that the manufacturer said no demand for it. And, uh, we got better tech now yeah. went away now, with the stroke of a pen. It was gone. Now, uh, 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 you know, you're my younger brother, so I'm only going to correct you partially. It's not that they quit making high shock. They're still making it to this day. Mm-hmm. It's a question of how often do they make it? There you go. Right, so they still make hydroshock, but around 2007, it was like, okay, because most people don't realize that the factories, you know, they don't have 11 sets of machines. What they have is a couple sets of machines or a few, and then what they have to do is switch everything over. Now, so even hydroshock or anything else, oh, they'll make it. But the question is, how many rounds will they make and how often will they make it? And right. that's when Hydroshock was pretty much had gone by the wayside. Um, HST was a much better load, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They'll still make runs of Hydroshock, but not to the level that you go, 
yeah, anytime I want to pick up the phone, call the distributor and go, I want 124 Hydroshock. Well, that's like 19th on the level for federal in terms of order of we need to make it. Right. And so, yeah, they, they so you're, you're, you're practically completely correct. Thanks for coming on, being a guest back on Hanny's podcast here, the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast. A reminder, if you haven't, please check out today's sponsors, KSG Armory, EDC Belt Company, and uh, if you feel like throwing me a Patreon bone, uh, I'll put the Patreon link to my page, $3 a month, doesn't hurt too bad. 36 bucks a year for less than a cup of Starbucks per month. I'm sorry. Did I say Starbucks for less than a cup of coffee a month? Your uh, pumpkin spice latte. Uh, you can join the adopt a cop program on Patreon and I'll write some good articles, take some good pictures. And I got video getting ready to go live on some exclusive content for armor level stuff for 2011s, 1911s. So, uh, you know, stay tuned. We'll see how that goes. Also, uh, I will be at SHOT Show as well as it looks like tentatively Hanny will be at SHOT Show with me. Uh, we'll be around there uh, maybe doing some interviews on the SHOT Show floor. Uh, so come say hi. If you haven't, please uh, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.